My name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Uh, we're going to be in a, a couple places in 2 Samuel. You can turn to 2 Samuel 9 if you have your Bible. It'll be up um, behind me when we get there. Uh, welcome this... Uh, apparently, we're in the season of heat. Like, it's just here. It's just going to be hot now. Um, I, I wasn't quite mentally prepared for that. Um, and this morning, our, uh, how old is he, six-month-old lab, he chewed through my chacos. Yeah, exactly. So, he's dead now. <laughs> Not really, I didn't kill my dog. But man, he was close. <laughs> Cannot believe that. Um, uh, everybody knows what we're celebrating today. Ascension Day, right? Yeah, that's what was on your calendar. Um, Thursday uh, is, is marks uh, the day that the church traditionally recognizes as the day of ascension. Uh, when uh, Jesus ascends into heaven, um, probably I think the, it's right at the top of weirdest things in the Bible, I think. Um, Jesus just, like, he, he floats up. And um, oftentimes we just kind of skip over that part of the, the Gospels in the beginning of Acts, and um, we just move on to the beginning of the early church and the story. A lot of people don't know what to do with the ascension, and so we just kind of just put it on this little footnote at the end of Jesus' story. Uh, but it's... It's incredibly significant. It's important for us as Christians uh, for a number of reasons, um, but chiefly that we have the comfort that Jesus, who lived bodily on the earth, died, and was physically raised from the dead, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not, not spiritually. He's not a ghost who has sort of materialized or vaporized to wherever God is, but that Jesus in the flesh is seated at the right hand of God, forever acting as our high priest, praying for us, making intercession for His people. And we have the comfort that somebody that has our body, somebody who has our flesh and bones, is living eternally before the face of God the Father. So we ourselves are comforted that God's intention for redemption, it includes our physical bodies, and He is making a way for us to live with Him forever, that we could be touchable, tangible people who are wholly redeemed. Uh, Jesus is the not just the living, the resurrected, but He is the ascended Lord of the church and of all creation. So I would just encourage you to, to meditate on that, uh, what that means to you, that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated, uh, interceding for us on our behalf. Um, also, of course, we're, today's Mother's Day, probably knew that one as well. Um, moderately popular holiday. Um, 
And we, we're excited about that. There's a lot of, a lot of moms in our church, and we, we celebrate them. And we're going to have stuff in the back for people later. Um, but also, Mother's Day is really fraught with lots of complicated emotions. Um, some people have lost moms. Some people have never, never really known their mom. Uh, they've been abandoned by their mom. Some people really wish they were moms, and they can't for some reason that they don't even understand. There's uh, moms who have kids and no, no spouse. So they're preparing Mother's Day for themselves. And even in the midst of celebrating Mother's Day, there's this, the pain of knowing that they're, they're preparing their own Mother's Day. Um, there's women in our church who are single and who are very aware of their singleness on Mother's Day, and for some of them, that's really painful, and others, for other people, they're like, I'm single and this is great. Um, there's a whole spectrum of, uh, of callings and vocations amongst the women of our church, and uh, mothering is certainly a holy and good vocation that we celebrate and we benefit from. Um, but friendship, singleness, uh, there are lots of holy and good vocations that you don't have to ascend to the hill of motherhood to uh, be finally worthy of a holy vocation. Wherever God has called you and placed you is a holy and good vocation. And um, whatever, whatever goodness you celebrate today, uh, whether you are also lamenting the good that you do not have, you are dearly loved by God. And the ideal of motherhood, the things that we celebrate in motherhood are actually a reflection of the character of God. That is, that is imaging the nature of God Himself. The scriptures will use mothering language to describe what God does with His people. Uh, and so that God, He is the one who cares for you and loves you dearly no matter where you are um, this morning. So, we're going to celebrate everybody on along that spectrum, give thanks for, for the work that our mothers do, because I know I am super grateful both for my mom and the mothering that my wife does. I could not do that. Promise you. My daughter just laughed because she knows that it's true. Um, but we're not going to talk about that. All right. I'm going to read for us from 2 Samuel we're going to read, I'm just going to read four verses from 2 Samuel 4. That might be behind me as well. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, and then we're just going to jump a few chapters to 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 4, 1 through 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other was Rechab, son of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beirut. Beirut, who is counted part of Benjamin, the Beirothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
Now turn to to 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That is a big household. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and the fact that you speak to your people. We are so grateful that you are a speaking God. We pray this morning that our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would hear you speaking to us of your kindness and faithfulness. God, make us to be people who are like you and what we do and say. We trust that you will do this by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This, uh, this is sort of the, the last remnant of Saul's household that we've been dealing with. Last week, we, we talked about Abner and the tragedy that uh, befell really all of Israel because of Joab's need to exact vengeance And here we have this little story, this little mention of this man named Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4. And by the time that we get to 2 Samuel 9, and we'll cover what happens in between there, um, David has become king. And he is established as king not just of Judah, but over all of Israel. And he calls back this this person. He asks the gathered people around him, uh, after some span of time for this person, Mephibosheth, the last remnant of Saul's household. In Mephibosheth, the text tells us again and again, he's crippled. He's lame in both of his feet. 
but he's still a descendant of Saul. Now, all throughout the beginning of 2 Samuel, David has been dealing with this sort of burbling and percolating civil war, this possibility that he might have to contend for his throne uh, through warfare with other Israelites for a long time. And slowly, th- those threats get eliminated, not even by his own efforts mostly, but them being handed over to David. And here we have this last potential threat to David's throne, this man, Mephibosheth, who has been hiding. Now, the text tells us that he's been living in this place called Lodabar, which almost literally means no man's land. It means, there's, it means no word, like this place is not spoken of. It's a, it's a vacant territory. And this is where this man has been hiding. Mephibosheth is, or was, royalty, born into royalty. And because of the rebellion of his grandfather, he has had everything taken away from him. He is an orphan, he is crippled, and he is living in no man's land. And David seeks to do kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan, his friend, this friend that he is covenanted to. He wants to do kindness to this man and his family. And it even names Mephibosheth's son, Micah, who's never again mentioned in 2 Samuel. This is, does not appear to be some like hint of doom coming that Micah will rise from the ashes of his family's misfortune and strike David down. It just seems like David intends to do kindness not to just Jonathan's son, but his grandson and all the sons that will follow. And so Mephibosheth and his family are provided for. They get Saul's land back. They get all the benefits of Saul's land. And Mephibosheth has a seat at David's table forever because of the covenant between David and Jonathan. This is a a kind of covenantal friendship that is established between David and Mephibosheth that is unexpected because... In some ways, Mephibosheth is of no benefit to David whatsoever. He can offer nothing. And in another sense, Mephibosheth is almost completely a threat to David. He can offer no physical service, no physical benefit to David because of his, his crippled nature. And it's, in fact, if, if Mephibosheth had been a Levite, he would not even be allowed to to serve in the temple or or tabernacle uh, because he would be viewed as unclean. He'd be able to eat in the tabernacle like a priest, but he'd never be able to work as one. Mephibosheth has no benefit to David as a warrior. He has no political ties at this point that could be a benefit to David. He offers nothing to David. And yet he is the last descendant of Israel's first king. There is still some sort of power in who Mephibosheth is. And that power is almost certainly ready to be leveraged against David. We've seen in all the chapters leading up to this 
that Saul's family just won't go away. At the very beginning of that little passage in 4 that we read and mentioned, this man, Ishbosheth, um, another of Saul's sons that David has been fighting against. And there's nothing in the text that would tell us that Mephibosheth is prevented from carrying on Ishbosheth's legacy of waging war against David, who has stripped everything away from him. So Mephibosheth offers no benefit, and it is in some ways a threat to him. And what David offers is covenantal kindness and friendship to him, brings him close and seats him in intimacy at his table, and re-inherits him. His family had been disinherited with the death of Saul, and David re-inherits him, giving him back all of Saul's land. This kind of kindness and friendship is for us this kind of uh, beacon, this pathway, this paradigm, which we should also seek to follow. And I know that personally, this is a kind, a model of friendship that I very often fall short of. It is not the people that benefit me not at all that I seek to befriend. It is not the people who are far from me in no man's land that I seek to befriend. It is not the people who may even be a threat to me that I would seek to befriend. I tend to accumulate people around me who are a benefit to me. And though I, of course, would not name it like that, I would never say, like, you're my friend because, you know, I can use you. I, I, that thought never even really enters my mind, but if I, if I step back and look at the people who I would call my friends, it is true that there's almost some sort of trading involved. They can offer something to me, and I can offer something to them, and, and some part of that is what friendship is about, the sort of mutual provision for one another. That's a, that's a good thing. But there is a non-mutuality here to David and Mephibosheth. They are in, no offense to Mephibosheth, they are not on equal footing. They, they do not offer anything to each other mutually. David is the one who is in power. David is the one that has everything and would only ever be threatened by Mephibosheth. And David befriends him. Several weeks ago, uh, I preached about the need for us to, to recognize that the kingdom is full of people who are not like us, and that we have to come to grips with the fact that the kingdom was meant to be filled with people who are of every demographic breakdown, social, economic, racial, that the kingdom is full of people who are not like us. And if the kingdom is always only full of people who are like us, then it is not a real reflection of the kingdom of Jesus that we're experiencing. We're just sort of establishing our kingdom where everyone looks just like us. And here again is this message, that David's kingdom will not be full of people who are only uh, a utilitarian benefit to him, people who are like him. But look at what it costs David. Because surely it does cost him something. Mephibosheth is seated at his table always. 
all the time sitting down with this man who represents the man who hunted him down in the wilderness. All the time, eating with this guy who theoretically could be leading a rebellion against him in the name of his family. It costs David his personal comfort to invite Mephibosheth into his household. It costs him materially However much he already owns, however okay he is, he still rightfully owns Saul's land. And he gives it away for the benefit of this friend who can do nothing for him. Because this is what covenantal friendship is like. That you you are willing, ready, able to give away your own comfort, your own power, your own security for the sake of a friend who is not necessarily your equal. How often do our own friendships, our own lives, reflect that kind of covenantal friendship? Some people are, are really good at this. I think that very many of us, me at the head of the line, are not very good at this. There is also something instructive for us about the nature and the power of David's relationship with Jonathan. Because this is really what this is about, is the covenant that David has with Jonathan. David feels is binding. No matter the fact that Jonathan is gone, his covenantal friendship with Jonathan is binding for him. And he... He's delighted to live up to this covenant, but he he owes up to his obligation. You know, I think that, you know, we live live in a day, in an age, uh, where people are decreasingly given over to this kind of commitment. We, We back away from having this kind of covenantal tie to the people who we're in relationship with. People my age and younger are familiar with the language of ghosting. You know what I mean, right? Raise your hand if you know what I mean when you ghost someone. Okay, let me explain to everybody else. So uh, in, in relationships, usually we're talking about dating relationships. If it's not just suddenly going well, and both parties may not even be aware that it's not going well, one person will just disappear on the other person. Never returning any text messages, usually text messages, never returning any invitations to anything, no contact, just one day, they are gone. Just gone. Not like physically disappearing, although it seems like it, just with no warning, they are gone from the other person's life. Because they want to be done with the relationship, so they make it done. And this is not just happening in dating relationships. This happens in friendship relationships as well. The fine art of ghosting is becoming, it's a spreading skill. And this speaks of the the unfamiliarity with this kind of commitment that you would be so bonded to somebody that you might uphold. Now, you don't have to date somebody for the rest of your life. But recognizing the power and nature of commitment means that when you are having problems with somebody, you don't just disappear on them. You don't just walk away. You deal with them as a person who you are 
united to in friendship? How many of us are committed to people around us to the extent that we will bring to them the grievances that we have? Many people have friendships and relationships where they will sooner walk away and never speak to someone again rather than say, hey, I've got a problem with you. Because that kind of relationship is difficult and painful. If you're willing to say, let's dish on what is really bothering me. Commitment is less and less valued, I would say, in our culture for the sake of comfort. Covenantal friendship, I would say biblical friendship, requires a commitment to discomfort. You must be committed to being discomforted for the sake of your friend, for the sake of your friendship. It is no bad thing to endure a rough patch with a friend. A friend that you will endure this difficult season with is a friend worth clinging to. David's model of friendship for us is deeper, heavier, weightier than the kinds of friendships that we often give ourselves to. But David, David here for us is giving us a clue as to why he is li- li- living this kind of friendship. Look again at, at 2 Samuel 9. Right at the beginning here, in verse 2 and 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, David says, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? This is what David is distributing. Now, there, there is covenantal bonds between him and Jonathan, person to person. But David is not acting simply out of his covenantal obligation and relationship with Jonathan. He explicitly says that he seeks to give the kindness of God. And the kindness of God that's being described here is this word is is sometimes translated loving kindness in your Bible. You'll see it often in describing God's covenantal relationship with Israel. His covenantal faithfulness both to His character and to His promises. That's what this word is when it says kindness. And and David is saying, I'm giving, I want to give the loving kindness of the covenant-keeping God to the descendants of Saul. David knows here that he's actually reflecting not just his own good character, his own moral standing, but he is reflecting and giving away the character of Israel's God who acts just like this. Because this is the way that Israel's God is. This is a right reflection of the nature of Israel's God. Israel is itself this giant living national example of God's commitment to being just like this. Because God chooses to bring Israel to His table, as it were, 
and bestow upon them this kind of faithful kindness that they do not deserve. And even though Israel offers nothing to him, in the book of Deuteronomy, as the people are preparing to go into the land of Canaan for the first time and, and go across the Jordan River and possess this promised land that David will eventually be king of, he goes out of his way to tell them, Israel, don't be confused here. I am not in this relationship with you because of your moral purity. Your righteousness is no good. You're a stubborn people. You disobey me right after I help you. I am not choosing you or being covenanted to you because of what you are, are to me as attractive or appealing or offering anything. And, and don't think that I'm choosing you, Israel, because of how big and powerful and excellent your armies are. He says in Deuteronomy 9, actually, you are the smallest of nations. You're the weakest of people. You're the people that I'm choosing, not because of your strength, but because of your weakness. Israel itself is Mephibosheth. They have nothing within themselves that offers anything to God. If anything, Israel is often in rebellion against this God. So when David is saying, I want to give the kindness of God, he is providing for us this exact picture. And David's son is indeed the one who provides a glimpse of this most clearly. David's descendant born in David's hometown. Jesus is the one who befriends all of the people who everybody around him is saying, stay away from them. Jesus loves to befriend the people that can offer him nothing. He befriends people who are unclean. He, he touches lepers. He, he's not afraid of their uncleanliness, but in, instead brings them in to his cohort. He treats women in his party as if they are meaningful and significant and able to learn and able to teach. He befriends Gentiles. He does not send away Roman centurions just because they are part of the oppressing and conquering power. He heals their children. Jesus again and again and again brings the disempowered to the table. He sits and he hangs out with a bunch of people who are far away from the center of power. Most of his people are from Galilee. They are not close to the center of power in Jerusalem. They are roughnecks. They are not well-spoken to people well-spoken people. The Gospels go out of their way to show their true character. And Jesus says, you are my friends. None of the people that Jesus surrounds Himself with are people that benefit Him. They are, it seems, a threat to His mission. These are not the people that can advance a kingdom. But Jesus instead brings these people close to Him he commits, he covenants to them. In fact, he uses the language of this covenantal kindness when he eats a meal with them. And he says, this is the meal of a new covenant that I make with you. This is the nature of the kingdom. This is the nature of the God of Israel. 
You see, all of us are this unappealing, seemingly useless kind of people. You misunderstand the story of God's love for you. If you think that God is sort of forlornly sitting in a corner by himself in desperate need of a friend like you. He doesn't. He's happy. Actually, God is happy. He has everything, everything that he needs. It's kind of the perk of being the infinite God of the universe. He's really fine. And and you offer nothing to him on paper. God is not sitting around and saying, man, I really, I got to get Anthony. If I don't get Anthony, this whole thing will not work. I promise you, that is not the case. And in fact, me, I'm a son of a different king. My father ultimately is Adam, the one who launched the first rebellion. I'm a descendant of the rebel king. I should be a threat to him. I offer no utility to him. And what Jesus does is he gathers people who should be his enemies and he makes them his friends. Jesus seats at his table all of those who would lead the crippled rebellion against him. The God of Israel is always who He's always been. Do you understand the nature of who you are? And do you understand the generosity with which God treats you? God, the good and right King of Israel, He said, who can I bestow my covenantal kindness on? And Jesus is so faithful a king that he will forever be faithful to this word. Even when you can't quite shake that rebel identity. Even though you may think again and again, ah, I've crossed the line this time. Now I'm out. Surely I don't have a seat at the table anymore. The nature of the King of Israel, the nature of Jesus, is to say, I am covenanting to you my kindness, even though I've always known all the ways that you'd fail me. There is this sense when we hear about, read about David's love, that he is, he is stooping down from his powerful perch to bring Mephibosheth close to him. It's the sense that the language brings. And that stooping down kind of love is the love of God. If you're here this morning and you have thought, I've got to figure out some way to be good enough. I've got to figure out some way to be on equal footing with God so I can trade my way. I've at least got to be this good for me to get a seat at the table. You misunderstand. 
the, the table of God is not extended to those who are good enough. The table of God is extended to those whom Jesus carries and puts there. And if you have known that for a little while, but then kind of just drifted into the idea that God needs you to be good enough for Him. This morning, the Scripture stands before you as a a kind of blessed and gentle correction to you. You never, ever were somebody that God needed. You were always somebody that God wanted and chose to covenant Himself to. He just chooses to love you. And if you were doing great and you understood that choosing, but today you are in your head rehearsing all of your reasons for shame and all the reasons why you are not good enough, you need to know again that God just chose to love you. He just chose to love you because that is the way He is. He sought you out and said, who might I show my covenantal kindness to? We are people who bear Mephibosheth's name. That He seats us at His table. He seats us at this table. That He would do a kindness to us for all of our lives. Never expecting us to grow in utility or attractiveness. But always instead willing to give and to give and to give out of His generosity. The Gospel this morning is for all of those who fall short, which is every single one of us. The great and good news of Jesus is that His kindness and generosity extends even to surpass all of your rebellion. This morning, would you come and would you respond to Mephibosheth's God? Would you respond to this King of Israel, this better King than you could ever have hoped for? And would you sit with Him at the King's table so that He might do you this kindness forever and ever? Would you pray with me? God, we confess to You that we fall short. That we we do not offer to You all that You deserve. We have not treated You as the good King that You are. We have lined up in service to the rebellion. We do not deserve Your love. And if truth be told, there's plenty of times where, where shame over things that nobody knows, things that are hidden, shame pushes us far away from You. And we feel dragged down away from Your table. But God, we are grateful for Your Word that, that shows us, that tells us that You are not the way that we expect You to be. You are not the way towards us that we deserve. You are gracious and kind and generous towards us. I pray, God, that our hearts would be moved to see Jesus and to respond. 
that we would not any longer hold tightly to the standard of trading with You. But God, we pray that You would pry open our hands, that we would plead for Your generosity and see how overwhelmingly You respond. God, I pray for those who have never responded to You, people who are in this room and not in this room. I pray, God, that You would move hearts to look towards You in trust and in need. And God, I pray for all of us who have responded to You in trust, trusting that You would be this way towards us. God, I pray that You would help us to hear Your voice telling the truth even when we are listening to whisperings that we must go our own way or that we cannot possibly be seated at Your table. Help us to remember, to treasure, to hold on to the truth of Your generosity. Jesus, we thank You. There is no God like You. There has never been a king like You. Help us to stick by Your side for all the days of our lives. Amen.